one of the things I'm loving most about this seam side project is that we've been doing it long enough now that I can circle back to former guests from a year ago and catch up on what's been happening since the last time we talked. I call these episodes Backstitch, and they're short, informal chats that give the artist a chance to share the direction their work has taken, and it gives you, the listener, a chance to think about how the creative life can develop and evolve over time. You may have noticed that I don't have any commercials on this podcast, and that's all thanks to the good folks over at the Quilty Nook. Well, I guess that was kind of a low commercial, wasn't it? But other than that, listen... Quilty Nook are some of the friendliest, most inquisitive, and feral group of quilters I know. Their membership support helps make projects like this podcast possible, and for that, I am truly, truly thankful. If you're looking for community and inspiration, I'd encourage you to check out the Nook and come be our guest for a few days. You can find out more about the Nook in the link in the show notes below. I hope to see you there. In this episode of Backstitch, I sit down with Michael Sylvan Robinson from episode seven. In that conversation, we talked about their work with Gays Against Guns. And at the time of that recording, we didn't know that the shooting at the supermarket in Buffalo was just a few days away. Sylvan also shares some hard-won wisdom from years of activism, and their insights are both a balm and encouragement for anyone who seeks to make this world a better place through their work. So sit back, relax, and join me and Sylvan as we set out on a journey of creativity, self-discovery, and the joys of working with fabric. Sylvan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so great to be back and having a chance to catch up and uh, to revisit some of the things that we talked about last time. Which was extraordinary and tragic all at the same time, because for folks that haven't listened to that conversation, I'd encourage them to go back and do so. A lot of your work centered around gun violence and your work with Gays Against Guns. And then with, within just a few days of us recording that conversation, we saw that mass shooting at the grocery store in Buffalo. And so our conversation, unfortunately, became much more timely than either one of us had anticipated. I'm curious. I know that this still remains top of mind for you, the issue of gun violence. I'm curious as to what you've been working on over the last year, how that ties into gun violence, but maybe also has opened up to include other things as well. Yeah, I think that one of the things that unfortunately in this country today is that there's never going to seem to be a shortage of gun related tragedies to be trying to to recognize and understand. And, and in, in my work that also specifically focuses on honoring and remembering the loss of life of individuals in that regard. And I, I did just close a show in Idaho that had two of my memorial garments in it based on the Gays Against Guns work. The show was at the Lewis Clark State College. And the work, the theme of the show was health, right? So really thinking about unconditional care as part of health. And there was a wide variety of different health-focused artwork exhibited. And Gays Against Guns contributed one of my memorial garments that marks people who've been killed over the course of a year, as well as 15 portraits, placards of Idaho women who had been killed by gun violence over a several year period. And what was interesting for me in terms of that particular part of the research is that of the women killed by guns in Idaho during that time period, 
almost all of them had been killed by people they knew. So this was all, all but like one or two of them that had, had been killed by strangers. But primarily these women had been killed by husbands, ex-boyfriends, fathers, sons. And that's obviously a big component of the overall pattern around gun violence in America. But I think when faced with such a specific anecdotal experience of that that one state, it really just was such a shocking truth, right? That the guns in the home had been primarily the, the weapon that had, uh, through individuals um, who were relatives or loved ones, and that's a really hard pattern to recognize as, as for women and children, that's primarily the main way that women in America are killed by guns is, is through people they know. So one of the things that I do when I'm sitting with truths like that is to, it's almost a sort of, as you know, I'm not a quiltist per se, but I use a lot of the quilting practices as some of the way that I approach work. And so you know, I'll sit with the names and scraps. Actually, this particular garment that I'm working on for the memorial for 2022, currently, I'm actually using quilt pieces that, that people have given me and then collaging with them as well. So I actually am using what had, what had been meant to be a quilt in a way that is, is of my own hand as well. And I'm particularly focusing on the pieces that are red, white, and blue. So I'm deliberately using a kind of an American flag color palette for this particular work. And this is going to be a garment as well? Yeah, I'm going to, my last two were jackets or coats. So I think this one's going to be a dress, a long dress. And I'm currently working on a section, a section that will be kind of a large ruffle. And so I'm working kind of sequentially kind of a horizontal way and then eventually that it'll all be gathered and and become part of a ruffle that has all these different names and dates and people we've lost to gun violence and all the people who end up on the garment are people who's who I researched personally right so you know in 2021 there were more than you know 40,000 people killed by guns in the United States including by suicide and you know, I probably researched 150 or 160 more specifically. And primarily one of the things for Gays Against Guns, we try to focus on some of the stories that might not make larger media attention, right? So particularly transgender people, women killed by, you know, in domestic partnerships that aren't going to end up as People Magazine articles or on the New York Times or that or that kind of work. Now, was this the same show that you had certain pieces censored out of? removed from the collection? Ah, thank you. So this show in Idaho, it wasn't my work, but three artists, including the curator, Katrina, Lydia, and Michelle, all had work that was removed right before the show opened as being viewed as breaking the anti, uh, breaking the abortion gag legislation of Idaho. So the work was about healthcare and women's experience with pregnancy and pregnancy termination. But when the show got ready to open, it, it was deemed those works were pulled rather suddenly. And there's been some, some extensive press around this idea of the censoring, not only the censoring, uh, the, the, the censoring of art as a way of 
you can't even talk about the abortion experience. The work was removed, and you know, New York Times and other other newspapers, Art News, all of those folks sort of are thinking about this idea of this squelching of speech and art on college campuses. I do think that the work had not deliberately been attempting to be specifically activist or reactionary work. I think Katrina, the curator, really worked on trying to have this idea of care being really embedded at where all the work was chosen from. I do think that this is probably not the last time that a college campus exhibition will have this kind of experience happen. And then uh, the artist who had the work removed uh, recommended that the rest of us stay in the show. Obviously, just the idea of being an anti-gun activist meant in Idaho that that work was already controversial already for a state that is very pro-gun. But again, we had the same kind of approach. It was really focusing on lives of women in Idaho more so than the sort of the direct action work that Gays Against Guns would, would normally be doing. And I think that's a smart approach to try to bring stories and personal experience into settings where there might be resistance, but then do so by doing so by, by art and by carefulness. So Yeah, and that's so much of what I'm thinking about with this body of work that I'm developing currently, which is Southern White Amnesia, in which I explore white privilege and white supremacy in my own family. And I think for me, that feels like a secret key to talking about polemic issues, which is I'm not telling you what you should think about anything, but I am going to tell you my story. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to demonstrate how this story fits into a larger pattern and you can sit with it and figure out what that means for you. And I love, I think what I've seen you post about this, this ongoing work also acknowledging that you're, it's risky, right? That you're likely to make mistakes, that there might be people who feel um, that you didn't handle everything perfectly, right? And, and I really appreciated the sort of the out loudness of, I'm, I'm going to go there anyway, even though I don't feel like I have all of the tools or knowledge or articulation able to really, you know, to, but I'm just going to go there anyway because the work is so important. Yeah, I put this, I would, I, one of the things I've been reading to educate myself here in the last year or so, one of the books that has really helped me think about that aspect in particular was White Fragility, in which we talk about how white people can receive feedback on issues of race because we're not going to get it right. The nature of the problem is that white people have certain blindnesses, which means when we start to talk about them, we will reveal those blindnesses, right? And so I did put a disclaimer in my Instagram profile saying, Hey, I, I know that I'm not going to get this right 100%. And I receive any feedback, however you want to give it, as a sign of respect and love and solidarity, hopefully. Doesn't mean that real feelings won't get accidentally hurt. And I, I hope to have a chance to repair those if that comes up. But you touch on something that, with, with your experience at this Idaho school, Lewis Clark, that this gag order is something I normally think of in the medical field with doctors, that doctors aren't allowed to talk about these things. But now we're seeing it extend into other spaces, like the curators who are bringing the show together, which speaks to a larger culture of fear. I think that, you know, as an anti-gun violence activist, 
the majority of the homophobic or hate reactions that I've had on social media invariably come when I am advocating for the rights of other people to be safe from gun violence, right? So that my, it really, you have to remind yourself sometimes that the work that you're doing is really about trying to save lives. You know, I'm proud of the fact that the, that we focused on, on, on very specific stories from, from Idaho that I believe, you know, that not a single one of those women had been represented in wider news media. These were all stories that care and attention, individual work to try to learn about the life of a real person and to do so with honor, I think is, is always the path forward for me in that regard of that work. And you know, to be honest, I, I'll just say like we were talking about, about the, about your project, the couple of times where a family has said, I don't want my loved one honored by you or used in this way, we take, that, we take that down, right? We stop using those. More often than not, we get the opposite response, which is, I can't believe there's somebody across the country who took the time to learn about my loved one and is, you know, sometimes we'll mark the, the number of years. Uh, Anti-gun violence activists don't call that an anniversary, right? Because an anniversary is like a celebration. It's really, so marking of the years is the way that we talk about marking how many years it's been since an incident. But I try to, you know, mark, because I think families realize that people move on and forget. And quite frankly, our mass shooting rate is so high right now that two weeks later, four days later, a week later, we're not even done processing the last one and there's been five more, right? So this is this is something that I think keeps coming up lately as we're looking at the news feed in particular, how, how many days this has been since the last mass shooting. And I think that textiles have a powerful, personal, caring quality to them so that the use of fabric, pattern, you know, quilting model to, to a certain degree, I think is provides a kind of a comfort and a, a, a an invitation into what's then a, a difficult set of, of truths to listen to. And I think that will be true in your work as well, right? That that idea that the, the handwork and the craft that you bring so much love to is giving you a chance to sort of explore something that's, that's a tough and, and, and a hidden history in a way that um, now, I often say that I think that the decorative beauty work of my work is most applied when I know that I'm going to ask you to, to consider something that you might not want to, right? So I'm going to do if it's going to be beautifully beaded. Invariably, at some point, I'm I'm hoping that you're going to get in in to look at the be, the beaded be, the beaded detail and realize that I was asking you to hold something pretty pretty maybe hard to listen to. Yeah, I think of. I mean, we're on the same page when it comes to to that idea of embellishment and texture. I made a piece back in the winter, which was a, a fragment of an allegory that explains whiteness. And I wrote the allegory myself or the, the fragment myself. And the letters are hand cut and hand cut out of fleece, micro fleece, and then sewn down on velour and silk. And there's beadwork and there's mirrors. And everyone who walked into the studio that day or while I was working on it, which is like, oh, from across the room, I just want to touch it. I just want to wrap up. And I'm like, <laughs> wait till you read it. If I can remember, I, I bet you I could quote it off the top of my head. I spent so much time getting the words just right. 
some of our children were born with snakes in their cribs. These great snakes would whisper whiteness into the ears of our babies. Whispers like, all this belongs to you. Whispers like, everyone could have all this too, if they worked hard like you. And that can be pretty hard stuff. But when it's velour and micro fleece, well, it's too late. You're already sucked in. And the color palette in that regards of the ways that, you know, the the idea that the neutralness of, I was thinking reading an article about, about minimalist luxury clothing and this idea of the color palette being sort of a, a deliberate rejection of cultural pattern or color work in the regards that it sort of has in it this idea of sort of class and, and sophistication as being simplified luxury, right? And, you know, there's this a great artist in New York, Machine Dazzle, who had this incredible show at the Museum of Arts and Design with all his sort of costume assemblage work that he's been doing for years and years. He often talks about maximalism as a sort of a rejection of being told to be quieter or to, to be less visible, right? That, that the only way to go is to go full out into the, into the use of pattern and color and material and, and to just be so unafraid to take up space and to, and to be, to be bold. And, you know, as an early artist, people sometimes gave me a hard time about, you know, either it being my work being decorative or using, elements of craft that were able to sort of then be written off. And I don't find any of those things excuses to write me off, but I do think there are ways that I use those techniques because they have wide appeal, right? So it's, it's inviting a wider audience in who maybe aren't as experienced with thinking about queer theory or gender identity and, and, and the places that that work really holds for me. But this idea of there being, you know, quilt piece patterns or hand stenciled and then hand embroidered lettering or one of the big things I've, I'm thinking a lot about lately about how to get around the fact that I don't, I know that they're not good for the environment is I love sequins. I'm such a big sequin person and boy, when you order sequins in the quantity that I do and you think to yourself, wow, I'm really also an environmental activism and there's a, a real clash here between this material that I've learned to love. And so one of the things I'm starting to think about doing is looking for, and you're so great at this, but like looking for thrifted, repurposed, sequined fabrics, clothing, but then I could use the, the sequins that come from that repurposed material. You know, the problem for me is that I really, really love a color palette and a size of sequin that you're not really going to find even on the best of the 80s prom dresses. <laughs> but you just might learn to love them. You know, you just might learn to love them. Or it could be a, um, a percentage, right? Like, so if like 35% of the sequins came from repurposed, I might feel less bad about the you know, the high end, larger sequins that I love and, and using them in smaller doses. You know, and I'm going to give artists like you and me and everyone listening to the show, I'm going to give us a little bit of permission here. And I don't mean to, this is a hot take. Y'all get ready for it. But I think we're allowed to be contradictions. I, I believe that we are allowed to have 
certain ethos and certain ideals that we aim ourselves towards, it doesn't mean we have to tick every box every day as we go through. I think that's a lot of pressure. Now, corporations are a whole nother thing, so don't get me started there. But as individuals, I'm going to give us a little bit of grace. I have a, a possible commission coming up, so I won't name who it is, but I'll, I'll describe them as part of this. A really, really incredible environmental activist drag queen. And we're talking about creating a, an original garment for them that would reflect some of, be something that as an environmental activist, they could wear with the rules that their work exists in, which would be a challenge for me in some of the ways that I choose to work with material. But I also think particularly right now with all of the anti-trans and anti-drag laws across the country, this is also me really using the very best of my fashion, costume, and fiber art skills, and I using that to make something that's both beautiful and protective, protective of them personally, but also maybe evocative of the idea that you know, drag is art, it is art expression, drag is beauty, drag is not dangerous, drag is not, not a crime, all of those things, and to maybe use some of that in the text work that I do as well. So I think that's my next commissioned piece a big a big garment and we're, we're on the front end of that process we've been sort of you know doing the online dating from afar and are now settling into the the first rounds of the like what will this actually include but you know as you do all the time sometimes it takes a while of meeting someone in that social media space and then finally you realize that like it's time to have a zoom call or to show up in person together and and I, so we're right on that front end and and you are so great about the way that you you knit that web for artists in the country as well i really appreciate being a part of that and i love being a part of it too you know i think of like you know there's this idea of indra's net Right, which is this great cosmic net that represents the universe, and each of us are are our own jewel at the intersections of all those streams where they come together. So yeah, I, I like being a part of Indra's net. It's a good place to be. As a way, perhaps, of beginning to wrap up, I'm wondering. You know, we talked a year ago, and it's been a year since. Where are you going to be a year from now? Where's Sylvan heading after this conversation? Well, you know, two things that came my way sort of as we were having our call last year just came to fruition. So I, I just showed at the Patricia Suito Gallery in L.A. I showed sculptural work. I made these uh, fiber embellished heads that I call the Oracle series. And, and Patricia really encouraged a more sculptural kind of more fine art direction for that work. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. It was a great show and seeing my work in such a non-cluttered and plenty of space way, just so not my norm. You know, I'm a pack rat, you know, slightly hoarding fabric collection oriented collaged person. So most of my spaces are pretty busy. I really love seeing the space around the objects in particular. And then I'm in the middle of teaching a class. I'm a visiting faculty member in addition to my, my regular school administrator position. I'm, I'm teaching as a visiting faculty member at Bennington College, where I'm an alum. I'm in the middle of a clothing beyond binary class, where we looked at historical figures, trans, drag, 
gender nonconforming, non-binary people, and then are creating original design work, thinking about either those people as muses or clothing that meets those goals as well. And I think that what's next for me as a result of having a really great teacher moment is that I've gone back to doing more drawing and painting work myself, which I had put aside for a long time. And I'm so I'm starting to do my own textile development out of that work as well. So I think that some of what may come, and my work is so labored, layered, and time consuming. And I like the idea of having clothing it's not quite the right term, but almost like a little bit of like a ready to wear Sylvan. And I think the idea that if the collage layers started as original textile design, and then I added some of the layers that I normally do for a more sculptural or a more one of a kind piece, I, I might actually be able to make a small series of clothes. And I'm really thinking about this as like protective wear for the urban fairy. Right. So some cloaks and some good jumpsuits and something that, you know, is a, a, a non-gendered gown that you could wear with sensible shoes or, you know, Doc Martens. And so I think that's that's sort of in my summer works. And uh, and then I think for me that the thing that I, here's what I want to be by the end of next year. I want the sculptural me and the activist me and the spectacular, you know, genderqueer fashion me to all kind of meet in a way that someone cannot be seeing it as just pieces or different faces of the work. I really want the opportunity to start having those things exist in the same space. And I would love that to be gallery and museum and on the street in direct action and in places that maybe I haven't been invited yet or haven't known that I would like to be invited to. And I think that's partially what I'm, I'm going to take these great experiences that I've had in this year and good experiences also include some tough subject matter and some hard truths, right? Around when you're, when you're an anti-gun violence activist, any progress is often met with the current horrors. And so I think for me, there's a place where like activism for me is for free, right? That's the world. That's the work that I do as a citizen, a citizen of the world is just use the best of my talents for the good of others. And then the art me, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to see a little upcycling of the opportunities that come my way. I'd like to see my work more in the museum and and in a bigger scale of that kind of experience and so i'm, I'm putting that out there on backstitch today <laughs> and we'll circle back in 2024 how about that and see how that's working for you we got on record and i wrote it in my notes it's gonna happen well you know that i know that you're a good touchstone for like if you if people speak their intentions in this space that you help co-curate and tend and steward that that your that your own care and energy is being applied for those i think it's one of the things that, that i like about you and i also I, I try to tend this in myself as well any successes that i've received i always try to turn that energy back into generosity right so this is not pie just because you had a piece of it does not mean that there's no piece of the pie left for me 
And the more that we share that kind of quality of being able to celebrate other people's successes and to be able to particularly value that that racism and homophobia and transphobia have also impacted the opportunities that people have for their work to be received. So those of us who might have some white or cisgender privilege, you know, could really be more generous and more aware of being supportive of folks who are, whose work is getting in the door for maybe the first time or not to the same degree that, that artists that we've recognized in our classes and our histories have, have legacies of. From your mouth to God's ears. Sylvan, thank you so much for joining me again. Well, I know that you and I could just go on and on and on. But so, but the nice thing about being Brooklynites is that like, we'll meet for coffee. Yes, we will. And it'll be before we record another episode. And I'll put that on record. <laughs> That's good, Zach. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, if there's somebody you'd like to recommend to be a guest on this show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly at Zach at ZachFoster.com. Just remember Zach is spelled Z-A-K. And why? I don't know. You have to ask my mama. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, sow something good, and I hope to see you around the nook.